Warning. The degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. I'm wrong, you're wrong, seriously wrong. I'm wrong, you're wrong, seriously wrong. I'm wrong, you're wrong, you're seriously wrong. I'm wrong, you're wrong, you're seriously wrong. Hey, newbie, come on in. This is Seriously Wrong Prison. I'm your cellmate, Aaron. And I'm your cellmate, Sean. Got some fresh meat in here. What are you in for? Oh, Oh, wow. That shouldn't be a crime. Yeah, most of the things we're in here for shouldn't be crimes. I'm guilty of a property offense. It's like property, it's an unjust institution. Yeah, it's a dehumanizing place. Say goodbye to your friends and family. They might come visit you, but it won't be the same. Yeah, and once you're out, it's going to be pretty hard to re-enter the workforce. A lot of questions. What's with this gap in the resume? Probably turn to the black market. Probably find yourself getting into worse and worse situations, having no recourse for a drug deal gone wrong, except for violence. Find yourself caught, handcuffed by the long arm of the law, and dragged back here for a worse crime than your first one. Back and forth, back and forth like a yo-yo. Another wasted life. So if you two don't mind, I know we're sharing a very small cell together, but I'm gonna take my pants off and take a shit in this room with us. I mean, where else are you gonna shit? Yeah, no, there's nowhere else to shit. <laughs> that's a thing. That's a thing. New, fresh blood. You're not gonna be flagging down a guard here, saying, oh, "Excuse me, can I go to the real bathroom?" <laughs> it's not gonna happen. <laughs> no. You're shitting right here, just like Aaron is right now. Anyway, welcome to the prison. Yeah, welcome to the prison. There's often sort of a misconception when you're talking about prison abolition. It's like counterintuitive. People think you mean like, I want to let all the most dangerous people in society roam the streets, murdering and attacking others as they do. Just like, why are you why are you pro killing and rape, Mr. Prison Abolitionist? It's the first question that always gets asked. That's a great question. And I treasure you for asking it. And there's a good answer. <laughs> so. First of all, like you have to understand that the choice isn't between prisons as they currently exist versus nothing. There's a whole entire complex world of various potentialities and subpotentialities of various ways that you can prevent someone who's committed a murder, for example, from being able to have the opportunity to murder again or to live a free life as someone as if they never murdered. We treat it like, and I think the misconception comes from this, like living in a society where there already is prisons, these dehumanizing, like weird, cold places with these bars and just this cruel internal culture and the deprivation of like lacking a comfortable place to sleep or good meals, being forced to share space with Nazis. Yeah. Because that exists, people are like, oh, that's what you do. That's how it is. So that's what you do. Or like if you start talking about other alternatives, then they're like, well, but we should be doing the cold walls thing. We should be putting these people like they should be offering us free labor. Oh, so you're wait, you're saying that if someone commits a murder, we shouldn't treat them as a literal slave. We should reward them with not being a slave. <laughs> Yeah, all this like weird, hateful shit comes out around prisons too, of like where you have this really, really disgusting tropes around like 
corrective rape and like the prison rape stuff of like oh yeah oh well, yeah, yeah like don't drop the soap pal and it's like well that's a weird thing to say uncle john like because when you think about it you just said that if you rob a bank you should be raped Ends the breaks that's just what happens no changes society could make to make that different yeah this is like why i have a love-hate relationship with the term prison abolition love it because it's associated with a wonderful movement talking about like really important things but dislike it because of the reactions you get when you bring it up it just seems like putting those two words beside each other is almost guaranteed in like 90 percent of instances to create extreme confusion among the uninitiated as to what it actually refers to then you have to do the work of either like getting them on the same page as you which is usually impossible unless there's previous goodwill built up or they're like an exceptionally generous listener but for most people it just like they never get past oh so you want pedophiles roaming the streets around schoolhouses maybe they can move into your house maybe the pedophiles could live in your spare bedroom and babysit your children if you're so fond of this prison abolition (laughs) stuff oh yeah you just want to release them but you don't want to house them in the bedroom next to your child Hmm, curious interesting whose family do you want them to stay with Uh, someone else's i bet yeah typical socialist typical anarchist and it's such a dishonest thing because especially in the united states and the like massive levels of incarceration going on in that country focusing in only on the killers the pedophiles the rape like the people who have genuinely demonstrated themselves to be a danger to society most of the people in prisons aren't that you got like nonviolent drug offenders and all- yeah, or, or like people who repeatedly did something minor in a jurisdiction where it stacks to the point where eventually you serve time for it. And there's all these sad, sad stories of human beings who had the potential to have like really full lives who did something that maybe was a mistake. It's something that like you'd be like, oh, well, I wouldn't do that. And it's like, maybe fair enough, you wouldn't do that. But it's so sad. Like these people don't deserve to be caged for years or decades or their entire life. Prison abolition is about creating a society where nothing like a prison is necessary because we've implemented, first of all, like alternative systems for dealing with infractions that don't involve caging and jailing people. Also, the preventative side of like, why are these problems existing in the first place and how can we get behind it? And for a lot of those, it's going to be economic inequality and meeting people's needs. Whatever systems that exist for keeping people from reoffending if they're dangerous and giving the potential for redemption and also atonement and restorative justice, whatever system exists needs to be part of sort of a comprehensive system that seeks to reduce criminality and ensure that what's considered criminal is reduced to a pragmatically sized small field of things. And really, if you have to lock someone up away from other people, It's so bizarre to me that we think there's something wrong with making that situation, you know, mildly comfortable in some ways. Being locked away by yourself in a cell is horrible by itself, 
even with a warm blanket, even with a nice pillow. And people are like, oh, well, do you want to make prisons like a hotel? Do you want to make prisons nicer than having a job? Do you want to make prisons nicer than yeah, living You're going to in- make prisons so attractive, people are going to just be committing crimes in order to get in there. At this point, you're saying, I'll just get like a nice room, like an apartment, basically. Oh, and, and you're going to keep them away the- from the Nazis in the prison? <laughs> the answer to all those things is like, yeah, yeah, like definitely. Yeah, and those things shouldn't be nicer than the outside if it's like legitimately nicer inside a prison that's like halfway decent we could just let people in if they really want to go in you can come in leave whenever you want if there's a free bed here room if prisons are that great that people want to get yeah sure i like the idea of having sort of a friendly competition between the prison sector and all of the rest of politics on who can make a better life for their people you know, and it's like, oh, the prisons got ahead. They're nicer again. Well, damn, I guess we need to institute some reforms that improve Increase people's the, quality the of universal life. universal basic outcomes for everyone. Prison's like a five-star resort. Then the rest of society should be like a 10-star resort. It'd be even better. <laughs> it's like, oh, I have to live in a worse resort. And it's like, yeah, well, you did assault someone, so don't complain. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is proudly brought to you by prisons as an absolute last resort. We all know that prisons are unethical. It's wrong to store people in a cage. But if you're going to store someone in a cage, does it have to be a shitty cage? There should be dozens of things that we try before resorting to keeping someone in a cage against their will. But if we're going to do it, yeah, it should be a bit like a resort. Bastoy Prison in Norway is located on a lush, one-square-mile island of pine trees and rocky coasts with views of the ocean that are postcard-worthy. There's a beach where prisoners sunbathe in the summer, plenty of good fishing spots, a sauna, and a tennis court. Horses roam the gravel roads. 115 prisoners, all men serving time for rape, murder, trafficking, and heroin, among other crimes, stay in wooden cottages painted a cheery red. Some might say prisoners don't deserve this, shouldn't get this, but if you look at the results, it's hard to argue. In the United States, two-year reoffense rates are somewhere between 40 and 60%. At Bastoy, the figure is just 16%. Arnie Nielsen, the prisoner's governor, said, if we have created a holiday camp for criminals here, so what? We should reduce the risk of reoffending because if we don't, what is the point? Today's episode of Seriously Wrong proudly brought to you by Prisons as the Last Resort. Literally a resort. Thank you. Okay, I'll just uh, head through the metal detector. Here's a visitor, which, okay, yeah, right. Um, Hey. Dave, thanks for visiting me. Yeah, I'm sorry I didn't come sooner. It's kind of imposing and scary. Yeah, no, I, I get it. It's weird to come out here and it's 10 minute, 15 minute visit. Sounds like it's glass in between us. Yeah, it's like we can't even give you a hug. Yeah. Probably don't get a lot of hugs in there, hey? No. I don't, I'm sorry, I shouldn't. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right, man. I'm, you know, it's not exactly a resort in here. They, you know, we're not playing shuffleboard. Yeah, it's not summer camp. Actually, the one really good thing lately has been this book exchange program, and there's some, like, I guess, anarchists 
I don't know. I, I haven't talked to them. I've read letters from them, but I sort of imagine them all having like jean jackets and patches and stuff. I don't know. But they, they send books. Right. They have a program to send books to prisoners. Oh, that's uh, and awesome. And they also do letter writing. So I'm writing letters with this person, Kip. They use they, them pronouns. I don't, I've never met anyone like that. Oh, but they're, yeah. You get used to it's it. It's not a big deal. I don't even know what other pronouns. I've never met them, right? Right. Yeah. There's this guy, Kropotkin was his name. Peter Kropotkin. Kropotkin. Hmm. Yeah. Like a pot. It's a funny name. Seems really cool. He's actually born into like an aristocratic family as a prince. Mm. And he ended up like becoming a scientist and then he left, became really dedicated to like anarchism. And he sort of mixed in some of his ideas about biology in with his proposal for a, a more perfect society without government. And he was super against prisons. And it was like he was writing this in the 1800s. And so much of it, what he says, just matches what I see in here all the time. He's just against prisons altogether? That's... He called prisons the cradle of criminal education. Right. The prison life kills all the qualities in a man which make him best adapted to community life. That prison is the process of demoralization, in part because of forced labor. And for inmates, prisons are made for degrading all those that enter them. Prisons essentially function to systematically kill in the inmates every feeling of self-respect, dignity, compassion, and love. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, degrading humility. Is it true, when you came in, did they make you get naked in a room full of a bunch of the other incoming inmates and, like, do invasive searches and... I'm a bashful guy, I couldn't imagine. Yeah, I don't usually get nude in front of others, but in that context, I got nude in front of some uh, criminals. And police officers with uniforms on. Yeah. Just, it's a shocking scene I would have joked, if I was a lap, I could say, hey, why don't you guys get naked? (laughs) But (laughs) I don't think that would help anything. Yeah, that might have... This is the thing about the guard, that hierarchy, like, removes the sort of basic humanity of it, where, like, that sort of joke might be taken the wrong way, where, like, I'm... undermining them or something like that i mean these a lot of these prison guards don't get paid very much either and there's like usually reasons they like can't be a cop or something you know like so they're not exactly do you know if they listen to these phones they're not the they're not the brightest yeah yeah some of them are all right but most of them are sort of shit it's just like what benefit does anyone think you're getting from this kropotkin was saying in the 1800s the severity of punishments doesn't diminish the number of crimes you know like the i didn't break the law because i thought i was gonna get caught you're like oh i'm gonna break this law and then get caught but hey you know it's only a couple years in prison if it was more years in prison then i wouldn't do it yeah to quote kropotkin you can hang draw and quarter the murderers as much as you like but the number of murders will not diminish he said society itself is responsible for the antisocial deeds perpetrated in its midst and there's no punishment no prisons and no hangmen that can diminish the numbers of such deeds Nothing short of a reorganization of society itself, which I think is true. That, yeah, that makes so much sense. And that's why Kropotkin called on people to prepare a revolution that would abolish every kind of slavery, to open up new horizons for humanity. It's because all this stuff is bullshit. And I think that's what anarchists got right. I mean, I think that's why Kip writes to me. Like, that's why the anarchists do this stuff. It's because they just, like, get that prisons are a place that are full of people. Right. And it's true. Like, we're definitely people in here. Yeah, a lot of the dehumanizing language, criminals, felons, things like that. It's a way to distance people from their humanity when you're supporting yeah. policy that hurts them. And just taking away people's basic rights. You're a felon in the U.S., you can't vote after that. 
That's some bullshit. Like Even just being accused of a crime can totally fuck up your life. You'll lose your job while you're awaiting trial. Your rent piles up. Mm-hmm. You're disconnected from friends and family, like financial. Like just even if you're completely innocent, you get accused of something and you're in jail for three months before they release you time served like oh sorry about that they can totally fuck up your life and that's something kip always talks about they were saying that like i don't have a lot of money i never had a lot of money would i be here if i did like i'd be able to find some way out yeah get better representation yeah better lawyer or and it's like the whole deal the whole system set up so like those rich motherfuckers just make off like bandits while like I don't know, the rest of us just get fucked. Well, like, court fees, and, like, people have to go to jail just because they can't afford to pay basic court fees and other things, and so they are being held in contempt, and or, like, bail, the whole system of bail. Talking about being accused of a crime and having to stay in jail until your trial, people can get out on bail if they have money. No one went to jail for the economic crisis. All the white-collar criminals who tank the economy... I never thought that I'd be writing letters with an anarchist and saying, hey, this makes sense. But I also didn't think I was going to go to jail. Okay, I think that beeping means I have to go. Right. But good to see you. Yeah. Feel free anytime. I understand it's it's hard to make it out here. No hard feelings about that kind of stuff. I wish we could talk long. I wish I could give you a hug. But there's glass between us. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay, see ya. Bye. One of the parts of sort of moral nightmare of prisons that I find really, really upsetting, the more that I understand it, is the relationship between prisons and prisoners and the criminal justice system and people who suffer from mental illness. Effectively, the most consistently funded mode of, in some way, you know, dealing with the existence of people with mental illness in the United States is the prison system and the criminal justice system. These are people explicitly who need help more than the average person. And so the response of society is to put them in a position where they're punished for things which are benign, deprived of the social contact they need from their family and friends that could help them be well-adjusted, and they're deprived of the things that they need. Like the National Alliance on Mental Illness estimates that 83% of prisoners with mental illness are not given the mental health support that they need. And that's not some small amount of people either. Again, the National Alliance on Mental Illness estimates that about 15% of men and 30% of women who are brought into United States jails have a serious mental illness. The ratio of people with serious mental illness who are held in prison versus who are held in state hospitals is 10 to 1. So for every seriously mental ill person in a hospital, there's 10 seriously mentally ill people in prisons. And what that means is that LA County Jail, New York's Rikers Island Jail, and Chicago's Cook County Jail are the largest inpatient psychiatric facilities in the United States. The um, 15% number, I found some different numbers, and I don't think they're necessarily in contradiction because you mentioned serious mental illness, and I'm guessing that also has to do with diagnoses and who's been diagnosed, but the numbers I saw were that approximately 30% of prisoners report major depressive symptoms, which actually seems pretty low, and while upwards of 50% report symptoms consistent with mania and manic episodes, which would explain a lot of like acting out, being unruly and hard to control in public. But the number that really caught me was that 
between 15 to 25 percent of prisoners report symptoms consistent with psychosis, uh, namely delusions or hallucinations. And this is how we're dealing with people who are that ill, people who don't have a firm grasp on reality. And so they're obviously doing things that disturb public order, let's say, in some sense. Then we put them into cages, disconnect them from all of their social support. And like, it's, it's horrifying. When you think like 15 to 25% symptoms consistent with psychosis in the U.S., there's two point two, let's just call it two million people incarcerated. If it's twenty five percent, that's half a million people. Other numbers I've found said something like three hundred thousand. It's one of the things that's been driving mass incarceration in the United States, which like kind of really picks up steam in the nineteen seventies. The deinstitutionalization for what would have at the time been called insane asylums happens in the mid-1960s, in the late 1960s. People kind of like rightly thought, hey, this is immoral. Like asylums at the time are like notorious for poor living conditions, lack of hygiene, overcrowding, ill treatment, abuse of patients. Like the asylums were not good. But the way this kind of rolled out was that in 1963, President Kennedy signs the Community Mental Health Center's Construction Act. And this is meant to be like the foundation for creating community-based mental health facilities that would provide prevention, early treatment, and ongoing care for people and allow them to remain integrated into the social fabric of society rather than tucking them away in this asylum. But all this act was passed, it was never fully funded. So there was this awful system people realized was awful, and they're like, okay, we have to end it, and we should create other supports. But then they just didn't create the other supports and ended it, and so it all just got absorbed into the prison system. There was estimates that at the peak of institutionalization, there was something like half a million people in these asylums. And over the course of a few decades, that number dwindles down to like 75,000. But we have this now approximately 300,000 to 500,000 mentally ill people in prisons. So we just went from one completely inhumane, horrible system to another. It's such an outrage and just like that has such a real impact in people's lives who are again, explicitly in need of more support than the average person. Not only are they deprived of that help, they're actually treated as criminals. They're treated as like bad people and sent to the nursery of criminal education. And it's not like that incident is definitely a time in which mentally ill people were put into prisons in a new way. But as long as prisons have existed, there's been mentally ill people in prisons treated as bad people related to this is that 65% of American prisoners meet the DSM criteria for substance abuse disorders. So I don't know, like one and a half million, like DSM addicted substance abuse disorders, but also an additional 20% on top of the 65% are people who've had histories of substance abuse and were intoxicated at the time of arrest. So that brings it up to 85%. So it's another thing where people need help and instead they get the opposite of help. And I mean, it, what drives people to addiction, right? Like a need for like a feeling of stability and comfort that they've been deprived of for whatever reason. 
disproportionately people who are addicted to heroin, for example, were like abused as children. And that the drug is a comfort for them to be relieved of like the sort of burdens of their day-to-day life temporarily. And the idea that 85% of people in prisons meet this criteria of being either a current or former addict is a good indication that the whole prison system is set up to punish the people who are already punished. Yeah, and you mentioned the connection between addiction and childhood abuse. There's a super recent study that was just published this year measuring the prevalence of ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, among prisoners. So again, here's this a similar number. 85% of prisoners experienced at least one adverse childhood experience. What defines an adverse childhood experience? I'll, I'll just go through them. These are domestic in the household, this first category. 58% of prisoners had parental separation. Mental illness in the family growing up. 30% of prisoners had mental illness in the family growing up. 40% of prisoners had domestic violence in their family growing up. 30% had alcohol abuse in their family growing up. Another 32% had drug abuse in their family growing up. Another 32% had incarceration in their family growing up. That's the first little bunch of six. The next bunch of six is direct abuse and neglect. So 50% of prisoners reported verbal abuse by parents or caregivers. Wow. 40% reported physical abuse by parents or caregivers. That's a lot. 19% reported emotional neglect. 17% reported sexual abuse from parents or caregivers. And 11% physical neglect, so like not meeting their physical needs. So yeah, it's 15% reported none of these things, 17% reported one, 20% reported two or three, and 45% reported four or more of these things. And the more of them you have, obviously, yeah, the more likely you are to experience addiction or basically every negative life outcome you can think of. So nightmarish that of the two plus million prisoners in the United States, when you look for what are the commonalities between these people, you're just like on this scale of adverse childhood experiences, statistic like yeah. they're high across all these scales yeah. to a disproportionate amount. So the whole system is set up to punish the deprived and deprive the deprived out of this like moralism that by depriving the deprived, you're going to help create better outcomes. Welcome to Keyboard Warrior Radio Theater. Look, we can't improve conditions for prisoners. We can't give them good food. We can't give them nice beds because they are bad, morally evil. They committed evil because of the evil inside them, and we have to punish them so that they know the evil is wrong. Yes, it's true that we shouldn't improve their living conditions. We shouldn't give them access to more communications with the outside world or anything like that. But the reason that we shouldn't is because prisoners are the revolutionary subject. And if we pacify them, they won't rise up. How would it possibly lead to prison abolition to improve the living conditions of prisoners? The more horrifically brutal the living conditions are, the more that people are going to be inspired to call for its abolition. 
definitely keep the prisons brutal. Things that I personally wouldn't have the stomach to inflict on anyone, but I outsource that to prison guards, desperate people who are systematically detached from their own empathy and emotions in order to punish people. But that is not going to cause anyone to rise up. No, no, it is going to strengthen the system because people, after being punished by it, will realize that the system is good and want to help the system when they get out. And if they don't, then they just get more punishment. And that's where you're naive, frankly. But at this time, I think we can safely just be in alliance and work towards the same goals. And we'll let history decide which way the, the pendulum swings in the end. What do you say? Let's shake on it. And we'll see you next time for another episode of Keyboard Warrior Radio Theater. Oh, Uncle. Hey, hey. Oh, hey. Can I talk to you for a minute about... Uh, I saw this post you made on Facebook. Oh, you too? Oh, great. Yeah, yeah great. Well, yeah. Guys aren't allowed to have an opinion anymore. Everyone no, you can blowing up my private messages and getting texts. It's like, it's, it's crazy these days. Obviously, look, I'm with you. Racism is bad. Racism was bad. But it's been dealt with. Did you know that a review of over 20 million traffic stops found that black people are twice as likely to be pulled over as white people, even though white people drive more on average? And that black people are more likely to be searched despite the fact that they're less likely to be found with contraband. One of them, they even separated daytime traffic stops versus nighttime traffic stops, and they found that the distance between white and black traffic stops gets smaller at nighttime, presumably because it's harder to see the race of the person driving the car when it's dark out. And according to a justice department study released in 2013, white drivers are far more likely to have been pulled over for a noticeable traffic violation such as speeding, while black drivers are far more likely to not be told why they were pulled over. But it's not just pulled over, this is pervasive, it's through everything. Like a study of stop and frisk incidents in Boston between 2007 and 2010 found that 63% of such stops were of black people, even though black people only make up 24% of the city's population. And incredibly, 98% of these encounters resulted in no arrest or seizure of contraband, so they're just being stopped for no reason because nothing is ever found on them. A 2018 Washington Post investigation found that murders of white people are more likely to be solved than murders of black people. There's a strong correlation between areas that are black majority and low income and the areas with the lowest clearance rate for homicides. A ProPublica Florida Times Union report published last year showed that black residents in Jacksonville are three times more likely to receive citations for pedestrian violations such as jaywalking. The report found no correlation between enforcement of jaywalking and areas where people are likely to be struck by cars and killed. Instead, most citations for jaywalking are issued in majority black neighborhoods, regardless of danger involved. Data from New York City shows that black people are arrested for marijuana at a rate eight times that of white people. In Manhattan, it's actually 15 times that of white people. Black neighborhoods produce far more arrests than white neighborhoods for this, despite data showing a similar rate at which residents complain to the police about marijuana. Want to use. A 2014 ACLU survey of SWAT teams across the country found that paramilitary police tactics are disproportionately used against black and Latino people. Most of these raids were on suspected low-level drug crimes. A 2014 review of 400 instances of questionable asset forfeitures found the majority of motorists who had their property confiscated by the police were non-white. 
A 2002 study of narcotic search warrants in San Diego found that Black and Hispanics residents were significantly overrepresented as targets for narcotic search warrants in a study which controlled for usage rates, and found that searches of white suspects were more successful in recovering drugs than searches of Black or Hispanic suspects. A 2013 study found that after adjusting for numerous other variables, federal prosecutors are almost twice as likely to bring charges carrying mandatory minimum sentences against Black defendants as against white defendants accused of similar crimes. While white people make up less than half of the country's murder victims, a 2003 study found that 80% of the people on death row are there for having killed a white person. People who kill white victims are 2.5 times more likely to be sentenced to the death penalty than people who kill non-white people. And black defendants who kill white victims are seven times more likely to receive the death penalty than black defendants who kill black victims, and three times more likely to be sentenced to death than white defendants who kill white victims. Black people are more likely to be wrongly convicted of murder when the murder victim was white. 15% of people killed by black people are white, but 31% of black exonerees were wrongly convicted of killing white people. More generally, black people convicted of murder are 50% more likely to be innocent than white people convicted of murder. A 2016 Yale University study of solitary confinement found that black prisoners are more likely to be held in isolation than white prisoners, the discrepancy being even greater among women. A 2011 study of bail in five large U.S. counties found that black people receive on average $7,000 higher bail than whites for violent crimes, $13,000 higher for drug crimes, and $10,000 higher for crimes related to public order. These disparities were calculated after adjusting for the seriousness of the crime, criminal history, and other confounding variables. A 2011 investigation of presidential pardons by ProPublica found that white federal prisoners are almost four times as likely to receive a pardon than minority federal prisoners. And on Honestly, that's about one-eighth of the statistics that I have here on this list. I don't want to read them all out to you, it's probably getting boring, but I don't know what you think, Uncle, but I think what I just described is racist. Well, that was a lot of stats, and I'll be honest, it was boring, but I got to admit, you brought your receipts. This uncle is willing to reconsider his earlier held position. You're convinced on by the facts and logic? I'm convinced. I used to always say, you know, there's no greater compliment than when someone corrects you over an idea you held that was incorrect because it meant that they thought it was worth the effort to try to convince you and put you on the right course, that you believed I was worthy of being corrected in my ways. You know what, nephew, I think I'm going to go edit that Facebook post. I'm entitled to my new opinion. And so this formerly racist uncle not only edited his previous post, but made a new post announcing his new position that racism not only still exists, but is a huge problem, especially in the criminal justice system, and that it needed to be rooted out and restitution made to the victims. The end. When I was on the way here today, I was on commercial drive in Vancouver and there was a guy who is asking for change, but he was like decompensating somehow. I don't know the details of his like mental health stuff, but he was yelling in a way at people who didn't give him change. That was like clearly scaring people. Mm. He was in a mental state as such where he couldn't panhandle effectively without being a public, at very least nuisance, but also potential danger. There's like this weird sort of like edge of like... If he's not respecting these boundaries, what boundaries is he capable of not respecting? And there was no course of action that 
I could think of that was in between doing nothing and calling the police. Yeah, like someone who could become a danger, but it's like an uncertain situation. Or a danger to himself, and it's yeah, you don't understand yeah. what's going on in his world, but he's behaving really inappropriately for a long time. And like, I just could not bring myself to call the like cops. call the cops on it. Yeah. But I thought that's how this is going to end, is eventually someone's going to call the cops because yeah. he's going to do something. Or he just tires himself out and didn't happen this time but next time he's acting like this someone might call the cops something that's really dope in bernie sanders criminal justice policy is the creation i can't remember what it's called but exactly what you're describing something in between calling the cops and doing nothing like a task force or something it's like the idea that you could call some other number and get mental health professionals and trained de-escalation experts to come to a scene that's not like incredibly dangerous, but there's some kind of intoxication or mental illness in public, or like there's a domestic dispute that's not like super violent. Or, you know, like there's a lot of situations where cops seem excessive and cops are actually like not at all trained with how to deal with other than like how to subdue them and put handcuffs on them and get them into a police car. Like that's what they know how to do. Even if you give extensive mental health training to cops and like different types of mental health issues and like how to deal with them and stuff. And it's like the best training ever. It's a kick-ass week-long thing where you really cover it all. It's like, well, they go back to work, they dress like stormtroopers and they carry a gun. It's like, what's the logic of their profession? I I like the idea of creating this other like task force of like people who are legitimately trained in specifically this type of thing to go and be first responders to a lot of these situations that get out of hand because police are terrible. It's a system that like takes all these problems that we're talking about, poverty, mental illness, and racism, and multiplies them and enforces them with guns. Those are the primary things that prisons are doing in society right now with the like minor side effect of also keeping some murderers off the streets. It costs so much fucking money, man, for these prisons. Like we spend so much fucking money torturing vulnerable people and treating mentally ill people as reserve slave labor and treating innocent people like tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of innocent people in the United States and Canada. Uh, the Innocence Project estimates between two and five percent of prisoners are, are innocent. The reserve labor stuff is like super fucked up. Like, first of all, all prisons run on the labor of the prisoners they do a lot of the cleaning and like maintenance work and like working the kitchens. Like they're being forced to participate in their own imprisonment. They're being forced to like do the housekeeping in their deprivation chamber. You know, it's like insult to injury. And then in some states in the United States, they like have them working fields for crops for free, literally like slave shit. Wages for people doing production work in prison, so not like reproductive work around the prison. The wages range from no pay at all to max $6,000 a year for some jobs under like the main department of corrections. Unicor workers. Unicor is a organization that federal prison workers work at. They employ prison workers for between 23 cents and $1.15 an hour. And it's like, why do minimum wage laws not apply to someone because they're in prison? It's, this is the same thing as the outcry about prisoners voting. 
people don't believe in like actual basic human rights that are unconditional. When there was sort of the Twitter stuff going back and forth about Bernie Sanders saying that prisoners should be allowed to vote, I got in a really like passionate, angry mindset at the people trying to deny the democratic participatory rights of being a citizen within a society. Even if you assume that everyone who has had their vote taken away committed a real crime that was actually bad, oh yeah, all the serial killers are going to vote from prison to make serial killing legal. Yeah, no, I legitimately had people making that argument or that like all the pedophiles were going to vote to make pedophilia legal. 51% of the American population is a pedophile currently living in prison, so it'd be very (laughs) dangerous to allow them to vote. I wish I could remember because this person was twisting themselves into fucking logic pretzels trying to justify how this could happen. Because yeah, I made that exact point. Like there's a tiny minority of like, it wouldn't matter. Believe it or not, there are pedophiles out there voting right now. Not all the pedophiles are in prison. Just deal with it. There's a certain amount of people who are going to vote who are a murderer or a pedophile or a bad guy. And if your position is that pedophiles and murderers shouldn't be allowed to vote, then why are you advocating that all prisoners shouldn't be allowed to vote? Those are two very different positions. And you're defending the easier one, the murderers and pedophiles shouldn't vote while advocating for the less hard one, the like Mott and Bailey thing, super dishonest. But you're wrong even about the like safer claim that murderers and pedophiles shouldn't be allowed to vote because it should just be a given. Everyone can vote. Part of the premise of human rights is that you always give them to humans, right? Like, yeah. And now it is time for the segment of the show called Did You Know? where I ask Sean, did he know something? Sean, did you know that in 1980, the U.S. incarceration rate was 310 per 100,000? No, I didn't. Did you know that by 2008, it had risen to 1,000 per 100,000? That's more than tripling? What? Yeah, no, I had no idea. It's a lot, hey? Yeah, it's a big difference. By now, though, 10 years later, it's down at 860. Incarceration is actually going down. So that's good. Not down anywhere near where it needs to be, but it is going down. Except for one last, did you know, did you know that there is one type of incarceration that is still increasing? There's one group of offenders for whom incarceration has doubled in the last 12 years. That group of people is those being held in ICE internment camps, which was at about 25,000 in 2007, increased to about 35,000 in the Obama years, and has massively increased every year since Trump took office to currently ice holding about 50,000 people, which doesn't count the 11,000 children which were taken from their parents and are in custody of the ORR, as well as another 25,000 undocumented people being held in federal prisons or by U.S. Marshals. Oh, yeah, I didn't know those stats. Couldn't have pulled those out. Maybe would have guessed on multiple choice, but it wouldn't be based on knowing. Doubled in the last 12 years in ICE internment camps. Borders shouldn't exist. And if they do exist, you shouldn't have to go to prison to cross them. It should just be like crossing them. Hey, crossing the border now. Cool. Yeah, just like when you cross the street or whatever. Imagine if there was a border between your dining room and your kitchen and you had to show your documents. Uh, We got a borders episode. Check it out. And that was Did You Know, the segment. And now it's over. So I think some people talking about people who shouldn't be in jail, jails being used for things they shouldn't be used for, 
racist, disparate outcomes of who's actually being enforced. They say like, okay, well, why don't we just get rid of all that stuff, but keep the prisons? If we admit even that like, say, 80% of the people or 90% of the people who are in there shouldn't be in there, why not keep prisons just for the actual like dangerous people? And this is when I kind of get into what I think is like one of the most crucial flaws behind the whole idea of prisons is that like the prison system has these two conflicting things that it wants to do rehabilitate people to make them better and to punish people to hurt them for doing something wrong and hurting people and helping them like this is just super basic if you want to help someone who needs help hurting them doesn't help <laughs> and maybe you can be like oh i found some like instance where maybe hurting someone might help and whatever i'm just basically most of the time causing a general rule of good general rule like if you want to help someone don't start by like hurting them in really intense physical and psychological ways and yeah and just as a general rule starting out at the beginning and saying here my two goals are to help this person and hurt them it's like you've maybe go back to the drawing board on what your goals are it's a very weird contradictory ostensibly punishment is meant to be a corrective of some kind like corrections facility it's like to make what was not correct into something correct at the end james gilligan who he was a prison psychiatrist for like a bunch of decades and like spent his life speaking with exactly the kind of people that people are genuinely worried about when you talk about abolishing prisons, murderers, like the most violent people in society. This is like what he spent his life doing. Was he like Mindhunter? No, he wasn't trying to catch anyone. He was like not working with the FBI or anything. He was just talking to them and trying to understand them. That's so much cooler than trying to catch serial killers. I mean, catching serial killers, like, sure, it's great. We should catch them. Nobody's saying we shouldn't catch them. <laughs> serial killers, okay, that's intense. You got to do something pretty big to a serial killer, right? Let's brainstorm. What's the alternatives to the current system? So you want to restrain a serial killer for sure. And I think you've got a real ethical right to restrain a serial killer's access to innocent human beings altogether. Absolutely. For like a while at least. Abs well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, that's just for sure. I'm on board 100% so far. They should have their basic needs taken care of. And, like, you can listen to episode 196 if you want to know what basic needs are. Yeah, but maybe this is my dark authoritarian heart speaking here, but I feel like with a serial killer in particular, I don't see any requirement to ensure, like, a ton of quality leisure time to a serial killer. The way that I would with, say, like a crime of passion person who's... I, I feel like leisure would just be... Like, that's one of the easiest things to me. I mean, again, unless you're like, oh, we'll put him in an empty room with nothing to do. Like, if by leisure we mean, like, let him go to Hawaii and sit on the beach, obviously, that's too much of a burden. Like, we're not sending you out there with guards to, like, make sure you don't attack anyone while you sit margaritas on the beach or anything. Okay. But, like... <laughs> let me know if you think this is prison abolitionist. This is my most authoritarian, dark... Are you uh, against them having a like a twenty-seven inch TV in their room with access to Netflix and that stuff? Like, is that leisure out of bounds for serial? Maybe not killers? Netflix. I don't know. They've been a bad guy. <laughs> they should just get documentaries <laughs> on how to not be serial killers anymore. No, no. I'm thinking something because this is sort of a weird idea. Feel free to criticize it, but 
you should give them different reference material for one month at a time outside of their control. Give them a bunch of biology books for a month. Give them a bunch of math books for a month. See what they take to. Try to develop their intellect towards human achievement and advancement against their will. I kind of, I think I have a more... Try to get them super onto math and just be like helping solve the big mathematical... I almost like write those people off. Like, I don't know if we have a way of rehabilitating like actual serial killers. Maybe we can figure it out and we should definitely try. But for the most part, I'm just like, yeah, they're going to have to be kept separate from society forever and we can't be inhumane about it. I think maybe we should try to use their prison labor somehow, like as freely as possible. You know, we don't have to make them actually you can make them toil a bit. Serial killers can go to the fields. I don't I don't agree. <laughs> I mean, we're going to have, like, the fields, which is, like, the what? Like, the 30 serial killers in jail in the United States right now. We decided... That's why it's okay. There's, there's only there's 30. The serial killer fields. There's 30 in there. And then the pedophile fields. That one's a bit bigger. Oh, this is a delicious tomato. Oh, d- please don't look at the sticker. <laughs> why not? Oh, pedophile fields, tomatoes. <laughs> I understand why this is like fun to think about. It's like psychologically satisfying because these people have done monstrous things. You just want to hurt them back. No, but I think there's a real tension there. There's a real sort of ethical question underlying that like joke premise. To what degree do we have a right to deprive each other of which freedoms and and in which context. I want to take a pretty hard line with this. We shouldn't deprive anyone of anything that isn't absolutely necessary. So this is a different way of framing it. Like you talk about like extracting labor from people in this like really sort of hierarchical sense of like trying to like use people as these passive objects because they've been dehumanized by their crimes so we can treat them as tools like that's the disgusting logic of what i was just saying and also the prison system Mm -hmm. but like the sliver of truth in it is that whatever justice system exists in the future should give people in these institutions the capacity to thrive and contribute because it's meaningful and it's meaningful to them, and it's part of being a human in society and part of all of us contributing. Yeah, the capacity to contribute is a basic human need. Yeah, and it should be fostered consciously within the context of the prison environment. So many humans are in these boxes like we're missing out on so much potential. It's sad to think of like all the wasted potential that goes into these places to die. The loss of potential is the huge part, and we kind of got stuck on serial killers because they're the extreme case exactly but they're they're the test of the metal of the hardline position but when we're talking about designing prison policy in general they're outliers and shouldn't be what we're mostly talking about james gilligan what he sees as the base of most violence in society like why he thinks most people in society become violent he talks about this relationship between shame and rage and violence and masculinity. When people feel ashamed, they respond to that in a few different ways. First of all, they might deflect from the shame. Shame is the feeling that like other people are laughing at you. It's humiliation. It's narcissistic injury. Shame is the feeling that you are being negatively judged by others or like perceived as lesser than by others. 
first response for most people to shame is to deny whatever charge has been levied against them, regardless of truth. Deflect, just like, that's not true, that doesn't apply to me, you're wrong. Because shame is an intolerable mental state for most people. Next line of defense against shame is having pride in yourself. And so most people have reasons in their life to have some pride in themselves. They can say, oh, you know, I went to college or like I've worked at this job for a long time and I'm pretty good at it. I have things in my life that I'm good at. I feel capable. I feel like there's there's some refuge from this like burning feeling of being judged where you can say, oh, I still have self-worth. But there are people in society who don't have that. They don't have any kind of education. They've never held down productive employment. They've had poor social relations. People who become like extremely violent have basically all been heavily abused as children. So they have no refuge of self-worth. And then what people have left when you're feeling humiliation is rage at those who are humiliating you. It's a common understood psychological response to humiliation is to feel rage very intuitive. Think about any time you like shamed someone for something and they got mad at you. This is like the whole basis of the internet is shame and rage flying around. And like, you're so mad. No, I'm not mad. And then like for these people feeling really intense humiliation, there's nothing in society is saying you're a worthwhile person. When they commit violent acts, they'll almost always describe it as a response to some kind of disrespect, dishonor, narcissistic injuries of various kinds. Just like being made to feel lesser than and having no other route of response that they can see other than violence. Because as our like cultural masculinity norms kind of dictate that like that's how men deal with rage and women deal with rage in different ways, but men frequently do it using violence. So these things kind of coalesce into violent outbursts for these people. And then they go into the prison system and are punished because that's what prisons are for. They punish people. And punishments make people feel humiliated and ashamed, and they make them feel less guilty. This is like psychologically studied fact, because even if they did the thing, they've now been punished. So they feel like it's even in some sense. They feel less guilty. They feel less remorse, more humiliated. So that exacerbates this like lack of self-worth and this need to overcompensate with kind of like posturing and like puffing out your chest and like fighting people and having these violent outbursts to like maintain some like facade of pride and dignity for yourself. So he thinks this is like the basic psychological components behind most violence. So if we actually want people going into prisons to become less violent, have lower recidivism rates, to not offend again, we need to find ways to help them gain some kind of like legitimate feelings of self-worth. The whole prison environment of like deprivation and hierarchy is designed to just like generate this shame and like lesser than status is baked into the institution. Yeah, like everything's designed to humiliate. When I explain this stuff to people, like they generally get it. Like it takes a little while. Sometimes you have to explain the difference between shame and guilt or like you have to get into, I'm not saying people shouldn't have consequences. There's a difference between like punishments, which are a type of like imposed consequences meant to hurt people in order to 
dissuade them from doing the thing again. It's a type of consequence, but there are other types of consequences, such as, as I said, like absolutely like necessary restrictions on basic needs. But also I think like part of the consequences should be like dealing with the aftermath of what happened. It could take the form of like various restorative justice models where people interact with victims of their crime and attempt to find ways to make amends or to have atonement for what they did, or just even to like have to face the reality of the harm they caused in a more direct way. Like we talk about remorseless killers. And one thing James Gillen talks about is that like the vast majority of remorseless killers are not like born these like little empathyless kids who are killing animals and then like grow up to be serial killers like most killers who express no remorse are made that way through like constant dehumanization throughout their entire life so you're sending people to a place that is designed to make them feel less guilty it's literally designed to prevent them from learning their lesson yeah exactly like i remember when i was a little kid you got punished it'd be like now you're learning your lesson you go and sit over there. You don't get any treats. Oh, the lessons learned. That's <laughs> that's like the logic that people bring to the prison system. They're like, right, oh, right, go right. On the, you've been a bad boy. Go in the corner where you don't have a barrier between your toilet and your bed. And it doesn't even like work for kids. Like the kid will learn the lesson that if I do this, I'll get punished and I don't like that. And it might be effective. Like I'm not saying punishments are never going to be effective in, in changing behavior. That's sometimes true. Like, oh, my uncle went to jail once when he was a young man and he straightened up after that he was scared straight people would talk about these like instances where things like that happen it's like sure but even with a kid do you think that kid is sitting in the corner feeling really bad about what they did or are they like fuming at their parents that's generally what i think kids who are sitting in the corner feel is humiliation and rage might be effective like behaviorist way like sort of like a b outcomes like the kid will stop doing the thing and they'll be fine in the end and hug the parent it's all good i'm not saying it's the worst thing in the world but i don't think they're sitting there feeling remorse for what they did i think if you want them to feel remorse you have to connect them emotionally to the negative consequences of what they did which depending on what it is might be difficult but that's how you get kids to feel to learn their lesson you know, Kropotkin had it right in the late 1800s when Kropotkin said, the man who is called the criminal is simply unfortunate. The remedy is not to flog him, chain him up or kill him, but to help him by the most brotherly care. You know, that anarcho-communist former prince and biologist who served five <laughs> years in prison himself was right. Yeah. And that's why Kropotkin is a hero in the constellation of heroes of the Seriously Wrong podcast, because he got it right. Absolutely. Nailed it, Kropotkin. Today's episode of the Seriously Wrong Podcast is brought to you by Hurting People to Make Them Better. Mom, the kids at school are making fun of me, the way that I talk and the way that I dress. Oh, there, there, here. Let me just punch you in the face as hard as I can. That will make the other kids like you again. Thanks, Mom. That was really going to help me. Oh, Doctor, my whole life feels like it's going nowhere. I don't know how to exist in this modern capitalist society. It's too hard for me. What do I do? 
I'm going to put you in a locked room with nothing in it, and I'm going to slide food under the door to you a few times a day for a prolonged period of time. It's a process that the United Nations called torture. I think it'll really help. Oh, thank you, doctor. Yes, that'll hit the spot for sure. Help me, help me. I suffered multiple severe traumas as a child, and I've been pushed out of the conventional economy, and I've got no choice but to participate in black markets whose only enforcement mechanism is violence. I have just the thing. We built this giant building, and we made it really shitty inside. There's, like, cages. You have to shit in front of everyone else. They demean you the entire time. Like, the whole thing's run by guards, like goons. There's nobody there to care for you or help you in any way. They're just there to humiliate you, and everyone you love will see you through glass. And I think that'll just really solve your childhood traumas and the whole black market issue. When you get out, you'll be the CEO of a company if you want. Sky's the limit. Thank you so much for giving me all that horrible pain and strife when what I really need is help. You saved me. Hurting people to make them better. It's the logic of the prison system, and it's also a proud sponsor of today's episode of Seriously Wrong. And look, just to preempt a criticism, you know, I hear you. Oh, why'd you take money from the logic of the prison system? Aren't you supposed to be a progressive show? You know what? We liberated that money from the logic of the prison system. Now they've got that much less money to spend on advertising. And we took it, you know? So Yeah, it's a great point. Wrap your head around that. We now go to Wrongtown Diner, where two patrons are talking about what liberals think about prisons, jails, and the criminal justice system. Yeah, so it's kind of a weird thing with liberals because of the definition wobble. Yeah, because liberal both means a conservative idea of all leftists. To communists and leftists, liberal can be a pejorative meaning that you're focused on markets. People who self-identify into liberals can fall into either of those categories, either like really market-focused classical liberalism versus uh, the people like, who say they're classical liberals can be almost fascists nowadays or like pretty close but then also liberal at least in the united states generally means a social democrat uh, and if you say you're very liberal then you're like bernie you're almost a socialist <laughs> yeah it's funny when you're doing like a survey about politics and like your only option is very liberal to try right, to express yeah. yourself leftist so pwned by <laughs> definition wobble to be like what are you very liberal or are you just a little liberal <laughs> or you a moderate <laughs> conservatives when they're talking about what liberals think of prisons oh yeah they want to go easy on the prisoners and just we need to be tougher on crime but also like oh well, liberals want to send me to jail for my ideas which are not racist oh yeah <laughs> liberals are so authoritarian they want to send everyone to jail those SJW liberals well, just you know modern liberals you know they don't realize it but they're students of Mao Zedong and they want to be authoritarians who send me to jail for my not racist ideas. Those jails that I'm complaining, they want to make too nice and let <laughs> yeah. everybody out of. <laughs> yeah, they, like they the want liberal utopia to them is like, oh, you go to jail for being racist, but then we're so understanding and nice, we let you out. And then you go to jail for being racist, just permanent. It's like, oh, I'm trying to go to work. I have to go to jail and back. <laughs> These revolving door prisons, just because they said something racist on Twitter before work. Well, and you know that those people are going to reoffend, right? They're going to go out. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> Especially with prisons that nice. <laughs> <laughs> 
But, but then, yeah, the left, like actual leftists, at least some actual leftists, might kind of agree that liberals want to let people out of prison too easily or they're too squeamish about putting people in prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like prisons are like are necessary for different reasons. Well, yeah, it's just conservatives want to use prisons and police to uphold traditional patriarchal society, whereas like more authoritarian leftists and communists want to use prisons and police to enforce a socialist society, a communist society. It's a sort of a conservative position to advocate for that. Like there is an overlap there. And I don't mean that in, I mean that as much to give legitimacy to the conservatives as I mean it to take a swipe at the authoritarians, you know, like there is like a real overlap there. There's a real tangible overlap there in the same way that there's often overlap between say like anarchists and liberals right, where there is sure, like a yeah. real overlap there, but it's, it's good. Yeah. Th- Cause if you just took a statement, like you have to, crack down on crime on antisocial elements in order to have a functioning society without any more adjectives than that both an Othcom and a conservative might agree with that but if you actually ask like a liberal like i'm thinking like a progressive person who thinks that like reformed capitalism is the answer and like kind of like a normie leaning social democrat yeah, maybe, maybe yeah. they even like Kamala Harris. It's so hard. The, the definition of Wobbletoons, I'm like, this is a real liberal. And it's like, I can't find it. It's like, but what I'm thinking of specifically is like the type of person who would like first choice Buttigieg, second choice Kamala, third choice Warren, if it's what it takes to stop Sanders. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, this is a total liberal. Yeah, I mean, for me, like that fits liberal. Per- I mean, that's the liberal. But what would they actually say about prison abolition? They'd be like, oh, well, I'm... I'm a little liberal, you know, I'm a liberal moderate. Um, yeah, I'm not more. that liberal. I don't want to abolish I'm not prisons. Very, like, hey, I'm the most liberal guy in the world compared to a lot of my friends, but prison abolition? That's crazy. Even making things nicer for prisoners, they did things wrong. Sure, cops make mistakes sometimes, but that's just a few bad apples. Oh, I see why Judge is their first choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the liberal definition wobble thing. That's just, how can you navigate the realm of politics with people who think differently than you if you have directly contradictory definitions of the most common political word i guess you don't yeah you don't yeah but you know actually there's increasingly people who understand that prison abolition is the way to go you know there's liberal arguments for prison abolition and they argue for stuff like work release programs instead as the default and there's like i can't think of like any conservative off the top of my head but it's certainly possible like there's a lot of legitimate variation in people's position and yeah prison abolishing far leftists very common heck i'm one uh guilty <laughs> same me too i wonder how many other people in this cafe are uh prison abolitionists maybe we should hold a straw poll hey, ever- no i'm just be, kidding i mean it's worth talking to people like i don't know i just wonder if you like you drop this in people's mind and it like ripples in a pond sort of has an effect but i don't know yeah So yeah, it seems like prisons are awful and they need to be abolished. Yeah, I think we've demonstrated that. They're a moral nightmare. We've got the objective proof. We lined it up. And now everyone listening is a prison abolitionist. So where do we go from here? Is it easy to abolish prisons? Do you snap your fingers? Have a thunderbolt? Free everyone in any prison? And then burn all the prisons to the ground? Is there a secret cave you can journey to and inside there's a button and when you press it all the buildings will disappear, the prison buildings, and then there's no more prisons? Unfortunately, no. No, it's a process and it requires a thoughtful strategy about how to do this. This is something that unfortunately might end up being a long-term goal. 
Yeah. When I was watching an interview with Angela Davis, who wrote Why Are Prisons Obsolete? Kind of like a foundational text in modern prison abolition. And when asked this question, exactly like, how, how do you do this? It seems so distant, so different from what we have now. And her answer was that it's a process and the process is called decarceration, which just means getting people out of prisons, creating alternatives to prisons. But I think it's also just like extremely morally necessary to support any kind of tweaks to the system as surface level as they may be that make the lives of the people who are currently suffering the prison system better. Now, we're prison abolitionists in that we advocate for prisons to be abolished. They shouldn't exist anymore. And we should take steps to make them no longer exist. But I think there's often sort of a confusion about how reform and revolution relate to each other. There's sort of like this tautological assumption that any reform is some sort of like little tweak on the margins that's ineffectual, and that revolution is when something truly and deeply good happens through some sort of monumentous thunderbolt moment where mm. you can have these meaningful, deep things. So I want to borrow something, a metaphor from Zizek, actually, but put my own spin on it. This isn't exactly what he said. I'm going to make a beautiful bull castration metaphor. Now, I know our, our inbox, our DMs have been blowing up. More bull castration metaphors, please. Well, I'm nothing if not a people pleaser. So here it is. Let's think about the example of a bull's testicles is <laughs> our revolutionary goal. We want to abolish the bull's testicles. We want to remove them. So you could say a revolution is just take a knife and just chop them off. Just rip those balls right off. Mm. Castrate that bull. Wooden image. And you, mere reformist, not good enough. You just want to shave the balls. You want to shave the balls <laughs> first and you want to take off one layer, uh, another layer, you know, <laughs> just chop a little bit at a time off We're the leaving balls. the balls fundamentally intact. <laughs> <laughs> but then I want to propose a third category. Now, this is maybe a little different, maybe sort of breaks the dichotomy, which is that if you get an elastic band and you put it around the testicles of the bull and stop the blood flow to the testicles, the process of putting on the elastic band doesn't spook the bull. You don't get gored putting on the elastic band. Mm. And then what happens? Now, anyone who's castrated a bull will tell you. When you put that elastic band around the testicles, it stops the blood flow to the testicles and makes it so the cells in the testicles start to die. And then as more and more of those cells die, eventually the balls just fall off. So what was that? Was that a revolutionary castration or a reformist castration? Well, the process of putting on the elastic was sort of reformist in a way, but the outcome was revolutionary in the sense that the testicles are now gone. So thank you for indulging me in this bull castration metaphor. But I think it illustrates really sort of definitively and clearly how these categories can cloud our thinking about making pragmatic steps that have the outcome that we want and how you can make changes that are not mere reforms. They aren't just shaving the balls. There's actually many potential options. So we need a pragmatic systems-based sort of analysis of these things which at the same time remains unflinching in its commitment to the goals. And I think when we look at prison abolition, there's multiple different things going on at once. There's no enormous prison abolition button to push, but nor can we expect that by improving the food that prisoners get to eat, you're eventually going to create an abolition of prisons. And I think that's self-evidently silly, but at the same time, we should improve the food they get in prisons. Yeah, prison reforms, I think they're sometimes framed as like counter to the goal or like distractions from the goal, but they're really complementary. 
all prison abolitionists should also be prison reformists in the current context. So because we have this sort of integrated idea of reform and revolution, now we want radically different outcomes. We want to grasp things by the root and change society fundamentally to universally emancipate people. We wanted to have a sort of alternative way to talk about it that can help contextualize enormous political change as a process that has many different steps and many interrelated steps and is also something we can participate in in our everyday lives. So we talk about an ecology of tactics. The main three categories, I would put that in, and every part I think is needed towards revolutionary change. And you can even look back in history and find evidence of any sort of revolution or any substantial reform is based in great part in these three things working together in a non-complete process at a time. So this doesn't all happen at once. This happens bit by bit and they interrelate. There's narrative work. That's the work of pushing better narratives, more ethical narratives, and talking about the way that society could be. Uh, This podcast is an example of narrative work. It's going out to thousands of people who are listening and thinking about it. And then when they repeat it to their friends, they're also participating in narrative work. That's the thing that pushes the Overton window and common sense in the direction of society where you can have substantive change that's really meaningful. So narrative work is really, really important and I think often underrated. There's also prefiguration. Prefiguration is when you create systems that are akin to the systems that you want to become normal in the future. In the context of prison abolition, that could be creating norms around restorative justice versus like punitive justice within our own communities. Again, that's based heavily on narrative work. If you don't have that consensus within your community, then you can't actualize and prefigurate restorative justice. So that's another piece to it. And then the last is entryism. Now, entryism is almost a misnomer because it's not just about entering in systems yourself. It's also about influencing systems, but more broadly, it's about noticing where the resources are, where are decisions made, who has the power and authority to exercise power towards the ends that we're calling for within our narrative work and within our prefiguration and doing everything we can to move that needle to have those systems, those resources work towards these ethical ends. So the narrative, the prefigurative, and the entryist work together in an interdependent sense to create the outcomes that we want. That's how political change works in reality. Like if you look at the world. Yeah, the way that this really clicked in and made sense for me is that these three things don't necessarily tell you what you need to be working for. So you could be working towards the goal of creating the Red Army that's going to march on Washington, D.C. and... (laughs) take over the White House. You're going to need to do narrative work, you're going to need to do prefiguration, and you're going to need to do entryism. That's how you get to that political goal you have. These three things are elements of how you actually go about doing whatever your tactic is, or whatever the mid-range goal you're aiming for, the thing you want to happen. We want to do this. How do we do it? The answer of how is going to find expression through these three categories yeah and usually you'll find there's at least a little bit of each of the three and sometimes it's dominant on say narrative prefiguration or narrative entryism and stuff depending on the sub goal but just to give the example of if you if you wanted to get together an army to march on washington now that's not a political sub goal that i'm advocating for right now i think it's probably not going to be the way that we're able to achieve universal human emancipation but it's a nice example of a good like sort of revolutionary goal like quote revolutionary because it's really you know like conflict rah rah create an army fight go to war yeah that sort of stuff it's a great example of how even revolutions have this sort of reformist 
character or process to them because it's not something that you can push a big button somewhere and create an army from nothing you have to convince people to join your army that's narrative work and you need to prefigure having an army that is like the process of organizing people into the context of an army which is being what you want to see in the end getting together and creating that and then the entryist element is like how are you going to access the power and resources to have an army that's sufficiently strong to take anyone on. Yeah, you need weapons, you need training, you need all kinds of things that are going to probably require some access to institutions in order to get your hands on. So yeah, who's the best to do training? People who have received training from military organizations in a professional capacity. You know, these are the places where you're going to find the stockpiles of weapons and stuff like that. And this is something that like, for people who are on this sort of trip about the militarism stuff which i'm totally just not it's not my scene just to think about it there's a reason why white supremacist terrorists join the military it's to get that training it's to get that access to weapons they're not af- <laughs> they're not afraid to access power where it is and sometimes we on the left are so i think it's just worth considering maybe that we shouldn't be afraid of accessing what exists towards our ends but let's go back to decarceration and prison abolition what's the step-by-step process how do we achieve this in the end so if we've ruled out there's an enormous button somewhere we can push that will free all the prisoners and rehabilitate them yeah that doesn't exist as far as i know if people can keep searching but i think it probably doesn't exist one of the most obvious things that we need to do to start the process of decarceration is to end the drug war and to decriminalize all drugs. One in five prisoners in the United States are currently incarcerated for nonviolent drug offenses and shouldn't be in prison. So one major prong of the approach towards decarceration needs to be taking a look at what exactly is illegal and why and should it be. Is it worth it? Is this helping anything? Do these people need to be punished if we want to keep a system of punishment at all in society? Yeah, I think not only like letting these people free, which I think is sort of like the basic thing that we should do, but also how do we make it up for them that we deprive them of their life and often like the best years of their life were taken away from them by this disgusting system how can we not only decarcerate but then also give people you know two legs to stand on to re-enter society with this big hole in their resume and all these massively damaged social relationships from their time before prison absolutely we need to actually do the thing that prisons are in some sense meant to do which is help them function in society in a way that actually makes sense and i think just to bring it back to the ecology of tactics thing is like how does this work in practice okay so we want to do the policy of freeing nonviolent drug offenders and making restitution for them how do we achieve that well the first part is obviously narrative work that is making people agree with that proposition by sharing the information that's required to create a consensus among as many people as possible that this is an injustice that needs to be reversed and then the other part to it there is going to be through entryism or recognizing the power structure as it exists who has the power to pass laws it could be groups that have already been elected or it could be new people who are elected or it could be through say like the types of bodies and think tanks that are putting information forward like again that sort of narrative work but it's also institutions that we have these institutions that create policy recommendations that are often brought into law so this is sort of existing on the spectrum between narrative work and entryism. And in order to do the revolutionary thing of abolishing prisons, you need to work within these sort of like step-by-step bits. Otherwise, the whole process is incoherent. 
we want to get to a place with our laws in the end where people don't have their their freedom to exist in society their movement restricted unless it's absolutely necessary in law we often have these kinds of rhetorical standards that need to be met like reasonable doubt of guilt means that someone will be found not guilty what's reasonable doubt that's up to people's interpretation i think is it absolutely necessary needs to be the rhetorical standard by which we judge whether someone has their freedom of movement limited. So that's kind of the broader goal there, and not just drug laws, but that's the direction we want to head in. But also we want to provide in the meantime, in the sort of immediate term while we're doing this, we want to increase the availability of alternative sentencing. So this is something that already happens, but it's something that is massively underutilized in the current system. So alternative sentencing is things like community service, mandatory classes, or addictions counseling. These are things that judges can choose in some cases when there aren't laws against it, when there aren't mandatory minimum laws or sentencing guidelines that they have to follow that rule this out. Alternative sentencing is something that can be a huge part of a decarceration process if it's used widely because it's not putting people in prison. It's exercising other alternatives that already exist. And similar to alternative sentencing, there's also what's called diversion programs, things like taking people who are addicts or having severe mental health issues and diverting them to other types of programs like inpatient care, outpatient care, mental health services, addiction services, or uh, one like really prominent example of potential diversion programs is what's called work release programs. And there are better and worse versions of these that exist. But some of the best versions of work release programs are basically you end up living in a kind of care facility that offers education, life, job skills training, mental health services, addiction services, but also they hook you up with a job and you get a real job and the job pays you a real wage and you pay a little bit of money in rent but less than normal rent would be and you're getting like services and stuff and a lot of these diversion programs work release programs actually make money for the criminal justice systems that they're in rather than costing money and uh, reduce recidivism rates like massively and they again like you're diverting people out of prison so that's like the more that these kinds of things can be made use of this is decarceration. This is getting people out of prisons. And the, like those are kinds of things that are already happening and that we need to push to increase the amount of them. But I think kind of the like deeper issue with decarceration is that like everything people do is like some attempt to meet a need of theirs. And so when we're talking about why do people in society get violent? Why do people in society act in ways that are unruly or like seen as against the public order it's because they're attempting to meet some needs so we have to ask the question of like what needs do they have that aren't being met and how can we help meet their needs so rather than just focusing on this after the incidents have happened like getting them addiction services getting them education getting them job and life skills training like after the fact one of the most important things we need to do 
to move forward on decarceration is to start meeting people's needs before that becomes a problem. Like people aren't going to be participating in robberies as much if they have enough money to survive. Some like meaningful anti-poverty action is prison abolition activism. Like you're you're participating in steps towards decarceration if you are participating in helping to alleviate or end poverty. Yeah, because I mean, so much of what we do when it comes to, say, like the opioid epidemic and stuff like that is based on trying really hard to like plug these holes in the ship in a way that's absolutely needed. And like, no, don't get me wrong, like harm reduction is really important, but even more fundamental than harm reduction is trying to prevent the preconditions that lead to these sort of outcomes for people who become addicted to drugs. And the same totally applies for the way that poverty and deprivation fit into the prison system. It's important that we change the way that policing institutions and prison institutions treat people who are poor, don't criminalize poverty, don't criminalize mental illness, don't criminalize addiction. But also, in the process of that, it's complementary to it, is working upstream to make sure that we eradicate poverty, that we make society a dependable one. It's Prison Abolition Day, and the enormous red button that makes all prisons immediately disappear with no preparation has been pushed. Oh, just climbing out of this pile pile of men. What floor were you on? I was on floor two. Oh, yeah, close to the bottom. I was floor three, so. All right. (laughs) Remember when there used to be a fence here and then it immediately disappeared? Yeah, yeah, yeah. free. We're free. Let's go. I think I want to murder some more. That's my primary characteristic. Oh, you're in for murder, too. Yeah, murder. How many did you murder? I murdered my spouse and child, so two, two people. Nice. I slaughtered a man. It was manslaughter Mm. first. I was in for 15, Mm -hmm. and then I went and I killed two more uh, with intent nice so that's murder and wh- why did you murder because for me it was just because i have a love, love of, of murder, murder. yes yeah. so you want to go commit some murders together i feel like we're hitting it off uh i might have to rain check on that but why prisons were the only reason not to murder in existence for us i mean obviously that's true and obviously all of us guys in here were in for various crimes that we were intensely focused on and the first thing that we're going to do now that prison is abolished is go and try to do more you know, of the crimes because exactly we love the same the crimes. crime yeah. oh i'm gonna rob again i'm kill again i'm gonna get married have a child and then kill them again oh hey that's me i'm listening i understand you i just feel like it's a bit gauche and i know probably a bunch of us are gonna do this i'm not trying to throw shade Mm. it's a little bit gauche to just like do it right away right away then how long do you wait i feel like you're just sitting around staring at the clock like was it two hours enough a day a week like what is it okay, so i'm overwhelmed with a desire to murder obviously right the only thing that's kept me doing it is that now disappeared building basic logic but maybe we should integrate a little bit into society bide our time and then plan a really big one yeah and like i a can good see one. the appeal but at the same time like my stabbing arm it's just itching but with this many free murderers now yeah how are you gonna stand out how are you gonna stand out right okay let's do it let's plan something big all right yeah let's go find a liberal family to live with they'll agree with that i'm sure mm-hmm. i think that's basic logic basic logic welcome back to liberals destroyed I'm your host, Brett Burrito. That hilarious comedy bit was from our friends at Ridiculously Wrong Radio. Their third episode was so incredible. Everyone you know is going to die. And that's why our show today is sponsored by Perfectly Sane and Logical Insurance. If someone dies, that's bad. Getting paid is good. 
If someone's going to die, you might as well get paid. Liberals don't understand that if you get life insurance, when someone you know dies, you get paid. It's part of prudent financial planning. Leftists don't know how to manage budgets. They don't realize what's logical, and they don't know how to get paid when someone dies. That's why the sane and logical life insurance is something that you should buy for your family. So today on Destroying the Libs with Brett Burrito, I've got a very special guest. It is a real-life total liberal who I'm going to completely destroy. Yeah, here, I guess compared to liberal, I don't think of myself as a liberal, more libertarian socialist. Libertarian socialist, that's a contradiction in terms. Oh, no, actually the term libertarian was originally No, the two things socialist. are in direct contradiction. To be a libertarian is to not be a socialist, by definition. That's not true. Because that's socialism just not requires the, limiting the freedom of others. Socialism is about increasing the freedom of others. This is the absolutely insane madness that they're teaching in the universities. Who's your college professor, and which mass murderer does he idolize the most? Well, actually, her name is Lydia Lonrose, and she doesn't love any mass murderers, as far as I know. That didn't come up in class. The any. liberals are denying the facts. There's a criminal element to society that needs to be held down. If they're not willing to put people in their own house put a pedophile as a babysitter, then they shouldn't advocate for this. Wait, it's a always, pedophile as a babysitter? What? Well, I guess for liberals like you, pedophiles should always be someone else's babysitter. I don't think they should be anyone's babysitter. You and want I... to free all the pedophiles from prison at once and start a new daycare facility for all of them to work at. It's liberal logic. No, I just want to like do whatever possible to make sure they never hurt a child again. Can we not talk about pedophiles if you want to i guess i just you refuse to acknowledge the basic fact that unless we lock up murderers in prison they will murder again and look i'm a life insurance salesman i want nothing more than people to fear for death your proposal benefits me and my whole racket but i think this is absolutely insane everyone who can be locked up should be locked up in all circumstances and held there indefinitely what about you should we lock you up yes okay everyone in society should live inside an enormous prison prison should have high-speed trains that connect prison to prison and free food for all Everyone should be able to follow their dreams and get things according to need. Would the prisons expand to take up the whole planet, so the whole planet would just be one large prison eventually? Yes. And you're saying the prisons should meet all of people's needs? Yes. This has been my vision for a long time. Anything else is illogical. It's a fact that we need this. I mean, I gotta say, it doesn't sound that bad, actually. Prison planet. We need to build an enormous prison planet and all live on it. We still live in uncertain times, and we're all going to die, especially your family members, because we live in an increasingly dangerous world. We're not yet surrounded by a beautiful and perfect prison which provides for all of our needs. And hey, if your family members are going to die, might as well get paid. After the break, we will be responding to allegations that I should be called Tiny Brett or Little Burrito. I will have you know I'm actually average height. If you combine all male height around the earth, I'm smack dab in the middle. I'm not short. I'm a regular size. I'm not a little puppet. I'm a regular size puppet. Thank you. The other major piece to this puzzle is restorative justice. So like the basic premise behind restorative justice is that like if justice means repairing harm, then the process of justice should actually repair that harm. One of the core components is the face-to-face meetings, the idea that victims have a right to sit in a room with the perpetrators. Obviously, no one should be forced to do this if they're not interested, but many people who've been the victims of crimes are interested in this. It's kind of a common thing people say that they want, is they they want to be able to look the person who hurt them in the eyes and explain to them exactly why it hurt them and to to be able to see them understand. And like, hopefully, if they are able to connect to their remorse, get some kind of apology from them or come to agreements about what kinds of restitution or atonement can be offered. This is a extremely like 
difficult and complicated process that's going to be different in every instance. It takes punishment out of the equation and talks about, okay, what were the actual negative consequences here and how can the person who is responsible for these negative consequences accept that responsibility and make up for it because like the current criminal justice system like one of the first things they tell people when you get arrested is you have the right to remain silent anything you say can and will be used against you so what incentive is there for you to meet with your victim look them in the eye and say yes i did this you're on the defense you're trying anything you say can and will be used against you it's fundamentally antagonistic and it's fundamentally designed to prevent you from actually having that moment to take responsibility for what you did and to mutually agree on processes of atonement and restitution. Like you mentioned earlier, the evidence that showed that people who are punished feel less guilty because they're already paying for whatever they did. So they've just got this sense of outrage. Yeah. I can imagine the sort of like indignant, oh, well, I'm in prison. So like, well, it's so hard to have that moment where you realize the impacts of your actions in a meaningful sense. And like the internal mea culpa moment where you realize you've done something wrong and that and also that you don't want to do it again that like you don't want to be the person who does that and like how the system deprives people of that opportunity and it's not a punishment in the sense that we're talking about of like depriving them of things and stuff like that but it is hard like it's it's really really it's a hard position to put someone face to face with the consequences of their actions in human terms say like if they've guilty of manslaughter meeting with someone who's like a family member of the person that they killed like that's punishment enough like that is that's like and this is a misconception too is like people who commit crimes like this aren't walking around like completely indifferent to the suffering of others like they're still human beings like the vast vast majority of violent criminals are capable of empathy you know like by a lot (laughs) like vast vast majority yeah, yeah, yeah so like it's interesting to think about how to generate those sort of situations where someone could really, really feel the harm that they caused and come to the conclusion that they don't want to participate in that anymore. Like they don't want it to happen again and they, they want to go on a different path. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, it's so clear the prison system doesn't create that. Yeah. And like, again, puts blocks up in between. Like there's a lot of states where it's actually illegal for victims and perpetrators to meet like face to face. Like, I don't know if it's illegal too is the right way to say it, but there are legal barriers up in a lot of, of these processes to prevent this kind of thing from happening. And not that just meeting face to face is some magic thing. At every step of the way, it prevents people from connecting with their guilt their remorse and instead yeah substitutes that for shame humiliation rage which lessens their remorse it's just it's a it's exactly the opposite of what we would want and so there are experiments with restorative justice going on in the criminal justice system in the united states right now there's far too few of them so like i think pushing for the creation of an official alternative to the criminal justice system, which is the restorative justice system that people can opt into that is well-funded, well-staffed, and is kind of like a prominently known about and placed alternative to the criminal justice system is like a major positive step in the decarceration process. Because like the whole idea of 
criminals and criminal justice, I think is just wrongheaded. And like, it's about putting people in like, you're a criminal, it's the labels and like, it's pointless and it doesn't get to what we want, which is that people who do wrong things to connect with the consequences of what they did and feel remorse. So building this alternative restorative justice system at the same time as we are taking every step possible to reduce carceration, to decarcerate the criminal justice system, these two streams get you to eventually eliminating prisons. When you have this robust alternative in place, and when you've decreased the amount of people in prisons already so much that it starts to become pointless. So that's kind of my like vision for a gradualist getting to abolishing prisons. Oh yeah, my brother Jim just got out of restoration. <laughs> He's doing great. <laughs> yeah, he came out fully restored, hey? Yeah, people usually do. He knows so much about Shakespeare now, it's crazy. <laughs> he got really into Shakespeare in there. Yeah, restoration is something I like too, of like trying to make it a term that, but then you get this sort of like 1984 effect, yeah. like where if you make the sound of whatever the prison replacement is, you could just call it like the justice system. Like that's what you want to create in the end, right? Is a justice system instead yeah, of, yeah. we have like. Yeah, and it doesn't sound so, yeah, pot potentially like evil. I mean, if in society. <laughs> evil you in just the way make... that it's like. It's like, oh, it's like the this good like time happy zone. face on, yeah, something awful. I feel like whatever you call it in society, as long as it actually isn't evil, it won't get the reputation for being evil. It's just when you like name it when you're arguing with someone who's like a bad faith actor and you'd be like, well, we'll have something that's like restoration. Then they can be like, oh, and restoration, that's where you send everyone who's not mentally well hey like does deviating from your communist propaganda mean that i'll be sent to restoration i assume so uh, it'll be labor camps just like the gulags and you're like no remember they're gonna be like resorts you were just arguing with me that i thought prison should be too much like resorts that's what i'm talking about right and like i don't have to connect my previous arguments to my current arguments like yeah you're right <laughs> it's the internet no one's forcing you <laughs> and then they haha -ha react your posts that aren't jokes all up the thread <laughs> yeah they're laughing at you they're trying to make shame it's generate rage i think a good way to cushion the prison abolition term as well is to like really start with talking about hey did you know there's this problem with prisons and there's this other problem with prisons and gosh darn it don't you know there's this also this other problem with prisons you know i'm almost starting to think we should just Get rid of, abolish prisons, replace them with something more just, you know? <laughs> like some sort of justice system, a system of justice, yeah. a system that brings... Real justice, like actual justice. No, we in... need to build a social justice system. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, U.S. social it. justice system. <laughs> this is the U.S. social justice system, and these are their warriors and their stories. <laughs> it's like the Law and Order intro. <laughs> But yeah, like when you think about the Department of Justice or whatever else in the United States or the concept of the justice system, that's what it already means. All justice is social justice. The definition of justice is about something that happens entirely within the social realm. Justice isn't outside of us. Justice isn't something that we discovered. Justice is something that we co-create. Justice is a relationship between individuals and human beings. Social justice is just another way of saying justice. It's going to happen at restoration. 
restoration where you go when you did something wrong. Oh, man, oh, another mandatory wrong. massage. <laughs> I hate these wonderful massages. Oh, no, why are you taking my four-year-old daughter away to restoration? She had the bad thoughts. <laughs> we will return your daughter to you. Restored to the daughter you once knew. <laughs> <laughs> now here's the drill to drill a hole in her skull. Restoration. <laughs> Get restoration. The bad out. Restoration. Restoration. <laughs> this has been the Seriously Wrong Podcast. Thanks for listening. As always, shoot us that sweet six on Patreon to get access to the whole catalog of bonus episodes, Discord server, private Facebook group. Huge difference in us being able to continue doing the show. And thanks so much to the hundreds of people who have already chosen to do this. We couldn't do this without you. This episode wouldn't exist if you weren't doing that. We would have had to stop. This takes a lot of time to do research and produce a show and edit it and all the comedy bits and whatever. Yeah. There's other ways that you can help the show a lot. Promote the show on Facebook, Twitter. Give us reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere. But ultimately, if you could take one thing away from this episode, take away that it is possible and desirable to abolish prisons, and it's worth dreaming of horizons which seem beyond common sense. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for donating to those of you who do. Have a wonderful rest of your day, evening, morning, early morning, twilight hours. Whenever you're listening to this, have a wonderful rest of it from me. And if you got work tomorrow when it's late, go to bed. Yeah, you can listen to the next time in the morning. Just have a snooze right now. I'm wrong, you're wrong, seriously wrong. I'm wrong, you're wrong, seriously wrong. I'm wrong, you're wrong, seriously wrong. Next time on Seriously Wrong. And that is the last slide. So that is my presentation on how to reform the criminal justice system to better serve the purposes of rehabilitation and also to effectively deter people from doing crime. What do you think? I'm incredibly impressed. What do we call it? We call it the guillotine. So it's oh. sort of a play on during the French Revolution in 1892, they invented the guillotine. That right, is the, the blade machine that chops people's heads, heads off. off. Yeah. yeah. But you have to understand that at the time, uh, it was common for the death penalty to be done in sort of a torturous way. And that that was a step forward ethically to have sort of a quick, relatively painless death. So in that same sense, our criminal justice reform thing is sort of taking on the spirit of invention that led to the guillotine. Now, obviously not the guillotine itself. Now, there's no capital punishment in the system at all. Yeah, that was one of the things I loved about it. We've taken that spirit of invention and we've applied it to the modern criminal justice system. So from torture to the guillotine, that is the historical guillotine, is from the criminal justice system to the guillotine. That is the new criminal justice system I just spent 45 minutes explaining in detail. Okay, I think I'm... It's... You make an interesting point about the humaneness of the guillotine compared to what came before and the analogy to the current thing. Like, I get it. I get what you're saying. But it does seem like 
it'll just confuse people. Well, it takes a little bit of work to explain, but it's worth it. Think of it this way. It's like this guillotine is going to be so widely adopted and so successful that it's basically going to crowd out the previous definition of guillotine. It'll be a footnote on this guillotine that there ever was a previous guillotine someday. Be like, oh, did you know? Oh, it's interesting. The guillotine actually didn't originally refer to a criminal justice system based on humane principles of restorative justice. The guillotine actually originally referred to, I know this is crazy, a enormous blade that would cut off people's heads. I'm, I, I'm going to admit I'm having trouble with this. Like, I feel like well, you that's have a what lot it's called. Of, okay, okay. I'm just saying, I think you have a lot of great ideas, but I don't know if this is this is one of the great ones. A rose you know, I by think, any other name would smell as sweet. Shakespeare. Right. So, yeah, let's call it another. How about the rose? I like that. No, I quote Shakespeare not to change the name, but to keep the name the same. Well, yeah, I mean, it's your idea. And if we want to implement it, we have to listen to you that's so, right yeah it's going to be a pr nightmare but i think it, it will be worth it i still think it would be worth it to change the name but if you're set which it seems like you are for some reason i am set and my people are set yeah, okay okay let's do it it's the guillotine that's the new humane justice system the spirit of invention of the old guillotine made a new 2019 no death penalty anymore all right And so, despite some extreme and persistent confusion about the reforms happening, the new guillotine system was put into law in 2020 and was wildly successful at ensuring that recidivism rates decreased, restorative justice was found, and people weren't unnecessarily deprived of what they needed, especially the most vulnerable amongst us. 